Welcome to Constitutional Landmarks. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer. I'm an advocate at the Johannesburg Bar, and I've appeared frequently at the Constitutional Court. Today we're going to be talking about the first case ever heard by the Constitutional Court. Between 1959 and 1990, almost 3,000 people were put to death by hanging. The use of the death penalty against those convicted of political crimes had become very controversial. In 1990, President de Klerk declared a moratorium on the death penalty. The question as to whether it would be legal under our new constitution was ultimately decided by the Constitutional Court. The case of S. versus Makwanyane was a pivotal judgment from the court. I spoke to Gilbert Marcus, who acted for the accused in that case. I suppose for those who were interested in constitutional law, as I most certainly was, and who were so excited about the advent of the constitution and entrenched Bill of Rights and courts which had the testing power, we were very aware of the big constitutional cases around the world. And we certainly knew that one of the earliest and biggest cases was going to be the death penalty. It was a question which was ducked at the constitutional negotiations because it was a hotly contested issue. And those who drafted the constitution chose to be silent about it. And that too was well known. It made sense, as it were, to keep an eye out for the first case in which there was going to be an appeal against the death sentence. And one of the best legal journalists in this country, Carmel Rickard, phoned me about it. And I said, well, the easiest way to find out is to speak to the registrar of the Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein and to find out which, if any, death penalty appeals are going to take place after the 27th of April, 1994. And there were a number of them that had been set down for appeal in the Supreme Court of Appeal. And she was anxious to know whether any of those cases were going to raise the constitutionality of the death sentence. And I know that she spoke to several of the counsel who were in those various cases which were coming up. And she phoned me with some anxiety to tell me that she had spoken to one of the pro Deo advocates and asked him whether he was going to raise the constitution to which the answer was, what constitution? I then relayed that to Vim Trengove, who is a, a close friend of mine and an equally enthusiastic constitutional lawyer. And we approached the Bar Council and they mandated Vim and me and Jeff Budlander of the Legal Resources Center to do that appeal. And it so happened that that was the Makwanyani case. And that's how it came to the Constitutional Court. It was one of the first of the death sentence appeals. And up until that point, there'd been a moratorium on the actual implementation of the death sentence. And this was the case which was going to test its constitutionality. This was the first case. Our team had nothing to guide us in terms of procedure. We didn't know what tests the Constitutional Court was going to apply. We didn't know what their attitude was going to be to evidence. I had kept an article from many years ago, which has been written by the heart surgeon, Chris Barnard, describing the physiological effects of what happens to a person who is hanged. We simply put that in, and it's reproduced, I think, in Cato Regan's judgment. 
We got hold of a book about the death penalty around the world published by Amnesty International. We just handed out copies to the court. That's how we went about it. We really didn't know any better. I don't know whether I would have regarded myself as an evangelist opposed to the death penalty before the case. I certainly was opposed to the death penalty, but I wasn't one of those who stood up on public platforms proclaiming my opposition to the death penalty. But what I can say is that having prepared for the case, I was absolutely convinced that it was not simply unconstitutional, but that it was utterly inappropriate in a democratic order. I spoke with advocate Vim Tringove about the role that he played in the case. My recollection of particularly, not of court generally, but of a Makwanyani hearing in particular, is that everybody was very anxious, very tense, very excited, and very determined to make a good showing because this was our first run. I actually remember an incident when I was speaking. The judges sat in a half moon and Judge Sachs, who was at the one end, asked me a question. But before I could answer it, Justice Ditcott, who was sitting at the other end, said to me, Mr. Tango, can you tell me what possible relevance that question is to this case? That was just a manifestation of how tense everybody was in those circumstances. Arthur Shaskelson presided and presided then and for the next seven years. His court shaped the foundation of our constitutional jurisprudence for which I think we'll always be eternally grateful. And he managed to get the Ditkots and Saxes of this world to do so together and to complement one another. I remember George Bezos was also there, I think for the Minister of Defence, and for Lires was the prosecutor, coming from different worlds, speaking different language, but equally dramatic. I suppose each side thought that they were right, but the prosecution von Lires did speak the language of retribution and deterrence. We spoke the language of life and humanity. The two worlds almost ever intersected. There were some of the judges who were quite aggressively engaging with von Lires until Justice Kentridge, who was appointed as an acting judge while Justice Goldstone was still involved in these international prosecutions. So Kentridge was there. I think rather irritated with the other judges who were so interrupting von Lieres, said to him, Mr. von Lieres, I would like to hear from you what your submissions are. Will you please tell us? As a reprimand to his brethren on the bench. What was your client's view about this matter? They weren't sure whether it was going to be a good thing for them. They were quite anxious about it because up to that point, there was a moratorium in place on all death penalties. And for as long as the moratorium lasted, they knew they were safe. They also knew that this case would bring finality one way or the other and weren't sure that it would be against the death penalty. So they were quite anxious about it and not sure that they wanted finality. But obviously when the judgment came, they were relieved about it. Because of the um, moratorium, there was a buildup of cases since the 2nd of February 1990 when F.W. de Klerk announced the unbanning of the ANC. One of the other things he announced then was this moratorium on all executions. And the case ultimately got argued, I think, in 95 or so. So there was a five-year buildup during which people got sentenced to death, but no sentences were 
implemented. So there was pressure building up in the system for this issue to be resolved. On this issue of the death penalty, the issue featured in the constitutional debates as to whether the constitution should permit the death penalty or not. But the politicians were reluctant to take a stand because whatever that stand was going to be would be unpopular with a significant part of the population. So what they preferred to do was simply to build into the constitution a right to life and the other rights that you have in the Bill of Rights and to leave it to the constitutional court to determine whether the death penalty was compatible with it. But there was a specific decision not to legislate for or against the death penalty in the constitution because it was a politically unpopular thing to do. The politicians were very happy to duck the issue and leave it to the constitutional court to address. Is part of this because you've got this council majoritarian dilemma that if you had a poll, most South Africans, they'd probably say we should have a death penalty. And therefore it's a politically unpopular decision to make as a parliamentarian who represents those people. No, absolutely. You're quite right. And you've seen that in the US to the extent that death penalty was brought back after being prohibited for a time. Still have that macabre debate in the US these days with the poison that's running scarce and all sorts of... Justice Johan Krichler was appointed by Nelson Mandela to serve on the first constitutional court. I spoke with him about the role that he played in the case. It was fairly plain that the drafters of the interim constitution deliberately ducked the issue of the desirability of capital punishment. I believe that the reasoning on both sides, of all sides in the negotiations, was that we think that we shouldn't have a capital punishment, but wow, the constituency back there would be very unhappy if we put our names to abolitionist approach. And there were a number of instances where the negotiators resorted to what they call constructive ambiguity. And in the case of the death penalty, it was certainly constructive ambiguity. Section 9 of the interim constitution said quite bluntly and in so many words that everybody has the right to life, full stop. Unlike constitutions elsewhere to which we were referred in the argument, where capital punishment is reserved, you do have protection of the right to life, but at the same time there is a reservation for the state to exercise the right to deprive one of that right in given circumstances. Our constitution said nothing. It just said bluntly, everyone has the right to life. I thought, and I think most of my colleagues thought, if I remember correctly, that it was a pregnant silence and that it was left to us to bear the brunt of public criticism for the abolition, in quotation marks, of the death penalty. They politically couldn't do it. It was a major policy decision in light of enlightened jurisprudence in many parts of the world, capital punishment had fallen into disrepute. 
it had in fact fallen into disrepute in this country. And at the time when we were debating the matter in Munmak, there were some 400 people sitting on death row because the nationalist government had suspended capital punishment de facto. But clearly the, the Clark government did not want to do what enlightened thinking dictated. Clearly the ANC negotiators didn't want to do it. They passed the buck. I understood it that way. If you say that you have the right to life and you say no more, Pelilindaba, that's the end of your news. Or as a police commissioner once said, finish and clear. That's it. And I think that although we all agreed with Arthur's reasoning and his beautifully articulated reasoning, the majority of those of us who concurred, concurred inter alia expressly because the Constitution said in an unqualified fashion, you have the right to life. Full stop. Albie and I were probably the two opposite poles in the ideology. And we both founded our concurrences on the right to life as articulated in the Constitution. I do believe, whether it's egotism, whether it's training, whether it's a combination of both, I believe one gets a perverse satisfaction out of doing what you know is right, notwithstanding its unpopularity. I think it's part of the Judeo-Christian ethic that you've got to do it. Myself, it's certainly founded in my Calvinist roots. You know, through it, Kylum, let the heavens fall, the justice must be done. I think that's the oath of office you take as a judge. One of the themes that Vim punted, which found a resonance with the court, and it was a phrase which he deliberately used over and over again, was that death is different. It's a sentence which is irremediable. And I think that the argument which probably carried the most weight at the end of the day was that its implementation was arbitrary. It depended on how well-resourced the accused was. It depended on their ability to afford a lawyer or not afford a lawyer, as the case may be. It depended upon their race, and it depended fundamentally on the attitude of the presiding judge to the death sentence, because we were able to show by surveys done in South Africa, that there were very dramatically differing views by judges when it came to the death sentence. There were some who were vehemently opposed to the death sentence, and there were those who thought that it was the solution to serious crime and didn't flinch in passing the death sentence. So it would have been blindness in the extreme to ignore the fact that your chances of being hanged depended upon the judge before whom you appeared. What you find in the States, you know, with these innocence projects is that there's a large number of people who've been convicted of offenses, sitting on death row for years, and evidence comes out they didn't do it. And I think it's an interesting thing that's not really touched on in the judgment, and maybe for a number of reasons, this idea that people are fallible. 
uh, that we can make mistakes. And for a court to say we could be wrong sends a mixed signal to the public. On the one hand, of we could be wrong right now, not just we could have been wrong in the past or my colleagues could have been wrong, but I could be wrong. Mark, how many cases do you know of in South Africa where the evidence has subsequently emerged that somebody was sent to the gallows innocently? None that I can think of. Oh, uh, I have no further questions. Maybe this could be for a range of reasons. The one might be that our lawyers are more thorough than the Americans, or it could be that... Um, or we don't have southern juries, and we've never lynched a single person in this country otherwise than by the necklace. Trite and easy comparisons with the racism of the United States and apartheid don't cut ice with me. I was part of the old regime. I understood it. I hated it, but I didn't regard it as lawless as it was in Georgia. What I will tell you is that I was actually a serving judge in trial courts where I had to exercise those powers in the Criminal Procedure Act. I did not have difficulty with them. In my career, I sentenced two people to death. I have no hesitation in saying that in terms of the law, as it was, they thoroughly deserved to be executed. They were cases of the very kind that is contemplated by the legislation as it was. And there were umpteen cases of murder and or rape and or robbery with aggravating circumstances where the death penalty was theoretically competent that had never, ever entered the picture. I knew my job. I wasn't an idiot. I had been in practice for a quarter of a century. I knew my people. I knew my law. I was confident in myself. And if I made a mistake, there were five people in Bloemfontein better qualified than me. And besides which, there were a dozen people in the president's office who would deal with any death penalty case. The capriciousness, the arbitrariness under the laws it was, I don't buy that argument. I'm sorry. We made mistakes, certainly. And I had colleagues on the bench who certainly I would not have liked to appear before. But uh, I don't know that any of their horrible mistakes didn't get corrected in Bloemfontein. Mm. But the possibility of error and the discriminatory nature of it, the discrimination against people who cannot afford top counsel or top experts, certainly would have been, if necessary, a fallback reason for me to say that you can't justify the finality of capital punishment. But I didn't have to go there. I don't think you get convicted properly in our law unless it is damn sure you are guilty. And let's not be simplistic about it. The ordinary lay view of a reasonable doubt based on television shows of who is the serial killer who raped this girl and left her body in a shallow grave. The overwhelming majority of criminal cases, the identity of the perpetrator is perfectly clear. The issue is a much more subtle one about how it came about and why it came about when you had to sentence somebody to death. It was a frightening prospect. It was a horrible prospect. 
I could, if I think again, I would get goosebumps again at the atmosphere that developed in the court somewhere towards the end of argument. It became apparent that this was one of those rare cases where there would actually be a death sentence. And you would see the deputy sheriff himself would come into court because in terms of the law, he's got to take possession of the accused there in court and take him himself to death row in Pretoria. And you saw the judge's clerk reaching in the other box for that black-framed form that has to be filled in instead of the ordinary one where he says 15 years, four suspended, a chill descended on everybody. I never got over that as a judge. I think if you do get over it, it's time you retire. But thank heavens, it's never going to happen again. I would not have the same faith in Judge Krishler that mistakes weren't made. The unpalatable reality is that mistakes are made very frequently. Well, perhaps I shouldn't exaggerate. From time to time, those mistakes are only uncovered when it's too late. And that's the problem with the irremediability of the death sentence, is that it is final and there is no room for error. Now, I think that the universal experience around the world, which has had the death sentence, is that innocent people have been sentenced to death. And I don't know that one can ever escape that. I think that to try and escape that postulates some sort of perfect world, which simply doesn't exist. And it's not enough, in my opinion, simply to say that the appeal court will put it right. Many of those cases never reached the appeal court. And it's also not enough to say we didn't have the Southern jury problem. Up until 1994, we had a virtually pure white male judiciary, most of whom were brought up under apartheid and would have gone to segregated schools and universities and would have wittingly or unwittingly absorbed the attitudes or some of the attitudes that prevailed at the time. And the simple truth of the matter is that the vast majority of those on trial for crimes which would carry the death people were black people. Their trials took place through interpreters. Their trials took place represented by the most junior members of the bar on a pro deo basis. That is simply flirting with the very distinct possibilities of miscarriages of justice. On South Africa's historical use of the death penalty, mm-hmm. do you think there were people that were put to death who were innocent of the no, no doubt that that's so, yeah. It's hard once they've been put to death to prove their innocence, but we certainly know of sentences of death that were imposed on people subsequently found to have been innocent. And I don't mean acquitted because there was reasonable risk. There was a well-known example, which we cited in our argument, of a man who was prosecuted for murder here in Johannesburg, uh, was convicted on the strength of a confession taken by the Hillbrow murder and robbery squad, but was later found to have been in jail at the time of the murder. So it was proved beyond any doubt that it couldn't have been him. So I have no doubt that there were cases where people were actually executed despite their innocence. That's another important consideration. With all other forms of sentence, you can never undo the sentence, but you can at least go some way to 
putting right past mistakes. Once the accused is executed, there's no room for correcting mistakes. And mistakes do occur in any system. No, I don't share his optimism on that score at all. I think he probably holds that view because he was such a smart and meticulous a judge. But lots of other people weren't. And remember the stock death penalty case in the 70s and 80s was a case of black-on-black murder, sometimes not particularly thoroughly investigated, that come before ordinary judges, not the critters of this world, and is then had in a language which the judge doesn't understand and is translated by an interpreter who is sometimes rather inefficient. So you often get a flawed interpretation of the evidence presented in a poorly investigated case. The fact that errors occurred there, I think, was inevitable. Apart from the one example that I mentioned to you about the conviction on the basis of a confession, I have no doubt that those errors occurred. We even have errors being shown up in the most sophisticated of first world societies these days in the UK and the US. Our system then was far less sophisticated than theirs is today. So the fact that errors occurred and people were executed, there's no doubt. The question one should rather ask if you were in favor of the death penalty, you might argue that mistakes are inevitable in any system and we should be prepared to run the risk of a rare mistake from time to time. I can't for a moment subscribe to that approach, but that is the one one has to adopt if you advocate the death penalty. I suppose it really then depends upon your attitude to dignity and cruelty. Is this a form of cruel, degrading, or inhuman punishment? Is it a violation of dignity? Because at the end of the day, it requires a human intervention to take that life. One can have debates about the relative humaneness of different forms of the death penalty. In America, you've got a range of options. You've got the electric chair. I think the state of Utah still has firing squad. You've got lethal injection. In South Africa, you had the noose. At the end of the day, it's an ugly process, whichever way you look at it. And I think that there is a sense of dehumanization when in a deliberate, calculated way, you go about extinguishing the life of a human being. And I think that's just the way I think I would see it. The judgment spends quite a lot of time talking about the idea of the death penalty being cruel and unusual punishment. I didn't buy it then, I still don't buy it. I've seen people die much more cruelly than being executed. I haven't seen people being executed. I've been on death row, I've had a look there, but I've got a much greater objection to the execution process than the cruel, unusual punishment part of it. I think it degrades society itself to kill when it says thou shalt not kill, and to coldly and deliberately through its agencies at lowest possible level, putting to death a person in cold blood, to me is is anathema, yes, but not from his point of view, 
from my point of view, from society's point of view, I don't want to live in a society where we act like that. And I don't think that's what the Constitution contemplates. There's this very evocative passage about what was done to people who were accused of treason by the British, which is that they would hang them and then disembowel them. Maybe this person deserved it, but we're better than that as a society. We will not do that to people as the state. It depraves the spectators. The society that enjoys this, that attracts onlookers to come and look at this. You know, the people who stop at a motor collision to see, ah, there isn't any blood, let's drive on. It's that kind of public sentiment that the law must set its face against. And I think the capital punishment is the ultimate example of kowtowing to the most atavistic, most primitive bloodlust that all of us probably have somewhere in our limbic brains anyway. Mm. We hope to keep suppressed. Justice Yvonne Mokoro also presided in the matter of S versus Makwanyane. I spoke with her about her judgment. Systematic, conscious, deliberate killing of a human being is for me the crux of the inhumanity of the death penalty. Our constitution gives us so many other bases for seeing it as a system of law which has no place in the democratic society, which values human dignity, freedom. If you use the killing of a human being to teach other human beings a lesson, you're instrumentalizing a human being. You're using a human being as an instrument and already you dehumanize the person. Do you think that well, there's something special about death? Are there more demeaning ways of dying? Yes, I'm sure there are. But is the cold-blooded execution of a human being something that we should officially do? No hell. You know, the question is not whether there are worse ways of dying. The question is whether we as a society should in cold blood take a person onto a scaffold and put a rope around his neck and kill him off. I just don't think that that's compatible with any of the values that we subscribe to under our constitution. The question is not whether there are worse ways of dying. The question is whether it is permissible for society on your behalf and on my behalf to commit that cold-blooded killing. And I don't think it is. In some states, you can understand how they got there, where they have the death penalty. They invite the next of kin to attend the execution. Now... That's the retribution debate gone mad. But can you imagine, and I'm sure they have different values, they judge things differently and I'll leave it to them. But I just find it completely macabre that the state should organize a cold-blooded state killing and then invite interested parties to come and watch for the satisfaction of seeing it. Another bit of evidence that we used in the death penalty case was a description by Dr. Chris Barnard of the biological impact of a hanging, of how the body reacts to hanging. And it's the most gruesome description. I can't remember all of the bodily functions, but there are lots of responses of the body to this mechanical killing which are so abhorrent that if nothing else persuaded you that this was an inhumane exercise, that description does. There is a consensus internationally that it's never been shown 
that the death penalty is more effective in preventing crime than any other penalty. And even the supporters of the death penalty internationally concede that that is so. What prevents crime is detection, prosecution, and punishment. But whether that punishment is then life imprisonment or a death penalty has not been shown to make any difference at all. And once you accept that it's not been shown that the death penalty is more effective in deterring crime, then there is no justification to take life because it does involve taking a life. I think that that argument one could feel made a big difference. We have a right to life under the Constitution. The question is, what right does the state have to take a life? Well, if it would deter crime more effectively than any other available means, then you have the arguments for a justification of a death penalty. But when you can't show that it does so more effectively than other means of deterrence, then that justification falls away. I get so upset when there's a public outcry for the death penalty because crime is overwhelming us. The problem is it also serves the politician's interest to blame the Constitution for the rampant crime problem that we have. But if you look at our levels of successful detection, prosecution, and imprisonment, Ron Paschke did some stats some years ago, which showed that the crimes most successfully detected, prosecuted, and punished were, I think, murder and rape. But even there, the conviction rate is something like 12%. So my feeling is that if you want to fight crime, the first way of doing, the most obvious way of doing it is to jack up your crime-fighting capacity to catch the criminal to prosecute them successfully and then to punish them. If your conviction levels come up to 70, 80, 90% and you still have a problem, well, let's talk about the death penalty then. But until you get there, don't talk to me about death penalty if you can't even get a conviction. You can't start killing people only because you're unable to catch the criminals. Anyway, I get too excited about that. You need to bear in mind that only a relatively small handful of individuals sentenced to death were actually sentenced to death. If we had actually executed everyone who was sentenced to death, we would have had what I think the Black Sash described in one of the documents before the court as a death factory. There would have been daily executions of several people if everyone was in fact executed who had been sentenced to death. Ultimately, the evidence considered by the U.S. Supreme Court and Furman versus Georgia and everything since then. A lot of material from Canada, from the United States, from the U.K. I think there was some from the continent. Ultimately could not establish capital punishment was in fact a more powerful deterrent than a very heavy sentence of imprisonment. There's this great anecdote about how the British used to deal with various crimes. They were quite fond of the death penalty. I think in the Makwanyana judgment, they referred to people being put to death for killing deer. Um, yeah, yes. that I think about is pickpockets who were executed in public. Oh, certainly. And the place where you were most likely to be pickpocketed. It was at, the, at the, exactly, yes. And that's such a nice illustration of showing you that you're standing there as a pickpocket watching one of your former colleagues 
die in front of you and it plays no role in stopping you from taking someone's wallet? You know, I think that retribution is the only legitimate argument in favor of the death penalty. I don't think it should win the argument, but I acknowledge that the need for society, particularly for the next of kin of the victims, to exact retribution is a legitimate one and one that society should respond to. The question is whether retribution has to be the death of the perpetrator. I can understand that victims often feel that anything short of death is not good enough, but the measure of retribution should not be the understandable motions of the victims of the crime. Society has to play a moderating role in determining the proper outcome. And there is a countervailing consideration, which for me, at both a moral and a legal perspective, weighs more heavily than any other consideration. And that is that there are certain things which we as a moral society do not do, whether or not they bring effective retribution or deter. For instance, we don't gouge out people's eyes. We don't chop off their hands. Why do we not do it? We don't even ask ourselves whether it would be an effective deterrent or make for better retribution. Because there are certain things which are just so abhorrent that it is the meaning of ourselves to inflict that on others. It's got nothing to do with the question of whether they deserve the punishment or not. I often feel that people do deserve the death penalty. But I think it's the meaning of ourselves to employ certain means of punishment. I think the death penalty is one. Burning people on the stake is another one. Gouging out their eyes or chopping off their hands or other examples, things that we simply do not do because it falls below a minimum level of decency. Decency, to shallow a word, humanity that we seek to uphold. But retribution is the one legitimate argument the other way. Is there an argument that our prison system is so inhumane that it has a similar level of abhorrence? In other words, when you restrict people's freedom, put them at severe risk of assault and rape for long periods of their lives, that they're analogous to gouging someone's eyes out or putting them to death? I don't know whether it's equivalent, but it's certainly similar. I agree with you. But the solution is then to reform the prisons, not to abolish imprisonment. There were two UK citizens who joined ISIS. And one of the things that they would do is publicly behead people that had breached their law or burn them alive in cages and all sorts of quite horrific ways of putting people to death. When the UK then removed their citizenship because they were seen as state defectors, they were then captured, assume for the sake of arguments that the people they have captured are the people who've perpetrated the crimes that they're accused of, Mm. that this is the perfect case of moral desert. Mm. In other words, people that were themselves executioners in the most horrific and barbaric ways in a situation where it's known that they did it, that even then it seems it's a difficult situation for us to say, well, should the state not sink to their level or are they getting what they deserve? This is what is required. The natural question to ask, which is often asked, is does he deserve to die? And I accept that there are cases where, frankly, people's crimes are so abhorrent that I wouldn't want to defend their right to live. But for me, the bigger question is, should we engage in cold-blooded killing, regardless of whether the accused deserves to die? And that is the point where I think you can never get past. 
however abhorrent the conduct of the convicted person might be, we don't chop off hands, we don't burn people on the stake, and we also don't execute people in cold-blooded killing. And that's how you differentiate yourself from ISIS. Yeah. They were not like you. Yeah, yeah. So to ask, does he deserve to die, is to ask the wrong question. The question is, should we engage in cold-blooded killing? Should we let our officials do it on our behalf? I think that if you want to have an execution, you should do it in public. It's far too sanitized to have those killings in private. If you're going to have them, have them in public, so that the public can see what is being done in their name. I suspect that there will be crowds gathered for the entertainment value of it, but at least then people will know what is being done in their name. The way we executed people was a very sanitized execution behind the scenes. I had one client, one person for whom I acted when I was a junior advocate. We were all obliged to do uh, pro deo cases, cases for which we got paid, I think it was 19 rands a day, to defend people at risk of the death penalty. And I did many of those. Then one of them, a death penalty was imposed. And let me say, if ever somebody deserved the death penalty, that was it. It was a young man, 21 or something, who together with his friends planned to rob his employer. I knew that the employer was a builder. He would come to the building site with a payroll on Friday. And they planned it in their hostel, told everybody around them. They got a pistol. They were going to hold up the builder. And if he didn't hand over the payroll, they were going to kill him. And that happened. They held him up, said, give the payroll. He resisted and they shot him dead. So it was cold-blooded, premeditated murder for financial gain. And if ever you had the death penalty, that would be a case deserving of it. But because I lit the case over two or three weeks or something, I got to know the accused quite well. And you ultimately learn that he is actually a pathetic human being rather than an evil murderer. Sure, he committed cold-blooded murder and I wasn't sorry for him. But my overwhelming feeling was that he was not driven by evil. He was actually quite an inadequate and pathetic human being. And the idea that our society, our officials will take this rather sorry human being and put him onto a scaffold and put a rope around his neck and kill him, I just found completely mind-blowing. Well, the mothers and fathers of our constitution negotiated the values and the issues around the constitution, they did have in mind the notion that this is an African country in Africa. And that is why they borrowed from the idea of forgiveness in the context of Ubuntu instead of revenge. And that is central to the idea of Ubuntu. That is central to the idea of African humanity and uh, African understanding of humanity, African understanding of the need to value the lives of others as you do your own life. The value of the interconnectedness of human beings, no matter what their backgrounds, where they connect at the level of the humanity of a human being. I look at you, I look you right in the eye. I see you as a human being with everything else. It's just baggage. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Constitutional Landmarks. Throughout this series, I'm going to be interviewing some of the greatest advocates that have ever appeared in the Constitutional Court. I will also be speaking to the judges who authored the court's landmark decisions. We'll be speaking about gay marriage, free speech, and a range of other exciting issues. In our next episode, I'll be speaking to Gilbert Marcus about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the litigation that almost brought it to a halt.